This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Cavalry Audio. Ladies and gentlemen, April 21st, 2022, I am Matt Belinsky, and this is your weekly dose of sanity, the prevailing narrative, rapturous joy across the land this weekend in America, particularly for travelers, as the federal mask mandate was struck down by a federal judge in Florida, um, and no longer the CDC's requirement that everyone has to wear a mask on airplanes, trains, buses, and other public transportation um, has been put on ice, at least for the moment. I mean, we'll get to the legalities of it, and then we'll get to the sensibilities of it in just a minute or to, but man, I mean, just think about how much tension the flight experience has uh, has included over the past couple years. I mean, if you're a flight attendant or someone who works for an airline, I mean, think about the pure volume of tense and hostile interactions that people have had with, you know, trying to obey by these very loose rules in terms of trying to require that people wear masks in settings where you're also allowed to eat and drink, where you kind of have to set and stay in one controlled setting for hours at a time. Salute to all flight attendants and people who work um, for airlines, because having to go and force this, be the tip of the spear, essentially, they've been the foot soldiers of the CDC having to enforce this mask mandate, whether it makes sense um, or, or whether they like it or not. And uh, salute to them. And I'm glad that that they can get back to some sort of normal semblance of life and not have to just be fighting with passengers all day long. I mean, think about it. Someone could compile the the freakouts and the flipouts of passengers and just in fights and hostilities over the past two years. Uh, man, it will not be society's finest moment, but it seems to be over for the moment, even though it looks like the Biden administration is going to appeal it. Um, so what happened here? Uh, let, let's go with Let's look at this from the uh, from a legal perspective for a moment. Um, a lot of attention has been uh, directed towards the judge who struck down the mandate. Um, she's a, a unique case. She was a Trump appointee, was appointed after the election, um, is one of the youngest, if not the youngest, federal court judges ever. I mean, I think she's only 33 years old. It was 33 at the time she was appointed. Her name is Catherine Mizell. Um, yes, she is. There's no secret of her ideological leanings. She was a clerk for Clarence Thomas. She was involved in you know numerous Federalist uh, societies throughout law school in her career. Those are all very much conservative, um, right leaning and very much focused on individual liberty as opposed to, you know, very suspicious of any government intervention whatsoever. So there's no bones about it. She's a conservative justice. And obviously, that's what a lot of critics of her decision are focusing on. Um, uh, as to the decision itself, you know, listen, at previously, uh, legal decisions in the Supreme Court striking down Biden's OSHA um, federal vaccine mandate, I think that was done on. On very sound legal grounds, um, I think a lot. You know that this OSHA was never granted the authority necessary to to issue a, a vaccine mandate, particularly in the limited circumstances. I mean, just uh, uh, the concept that I've harped on at the time was that any sort of restriction or impairment of individual liberty need to be narrowly tailored. And this was just something that was was uh, done, you know, with a sledgehammer as opposed to pinpoint. And I think the decision to strike that down was on very sound legal grounds. Admittedly, while I'm supportive of this decision um, and was against the, the federal mask mandate, uh, admittedly, I don't think this one was done on as solid legal ground um, as the the uh, opposition to the vaccine mandate. This was on, all done under the auspices of the Public Health Services Act of 1944, pursuant to which Congress granted the uh, granted the CDC certain authority to uh, in, you know to to address the spread of communicable diseases or other infirmaries via those traveling from uh, outside the United States into the United States and within the United States. So the language of the Public Health Service. Services Act itself. The Surgeon General, with the approval of the Secretary, meaning the Secretary of Health and Human Services, is authorized to make and enforce such regulations as in his judgment are necessary to prevent the introduction, transmission, or spread of communicable diseases from foreign countries into the states or possessions, or from one state or possession into another state or possession. For purposes of carrying out and enforcing such regulations, the Surgeon General may provide for such inspection, fumigation, disinfection, sanitation, pest extermination, destruction of animals or articles found to be so 
infected or contaminated as to be the sources of dangerous infection to human beings and other measures as his judgment may be necessary. So I got to be honest, that's pretty broad, right? I mean, whether or not you agree with the authority that Congress granted the CDC there, um, it, it, Congress is elected. It's it's the, they are the legislatures that that is the lawmaking body. Um, they are elected officials, and they're allowed to grant uh, an administrative body that level uh, of authority. The question is whether or not the CDC was acting within its authority. Um, Judge Mazel's opinion uh, suggests that they were not, and I think it, it harps a lot uh, in kind of a I don't want to say a misinterpretation of the text, but a really uh, you know aggressively narrow uh, interpretation, particularly as pertains to that litany of uh, uh, that litany of, of descriptions in terms of inspection fumigation disinfection and sanitation in saying that wearing masks or in the imposition of a mask mandate on federal air travel um, does not fall within any of those prongs of inspection fumigation disinfection or sanitation um, I think that's kind of kind of specious right I mean that's a really limited interpretation particularly of the term sanitation and that it, you would essentially be limiting the CDC to just things having to do with cleaning as opposed to preventative measures like mask wearing. So once again, while I don't agree with, uh, we'll get to it in a second, the mask mandate on airplanes when the masks are not required essentially anywhere else in the world right now, or particularly in the United States, um, is just nonsensical from a practical perspective, From but from a legal perspective, it would seem that it falls within the kind of broad authority granted by the uh, by Congress to the CDC. Um, kind of hard to say that uh, mask, you know, uh, imposition of a mask mandate to prevent the spread of a communicable disease does not qualify as fumigation, disinfection, sanitation, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, you know, and then beyond that, Ms. L, she kind of got into uh, kind of a little, in, in her opinion, a little editorial about personal freedom and individual liberty. And listen, while that's all great, and in many cases, um, maintaining individual freedom and liberty are, you know, legally sound principles. In this case, I mean, the question is, listen, that's the, that the authority, the CDC had the authority that I just described. So, okay, I, I, that accepts that the CDC is in some certain cases going to be um, contracting individual freedom. And the question is whether or not, uh, uh, whether or not requiring masks to be worn falls within that definition that I read earlier. It probably does. But regardless, that was the legal the legal ruling. So what was the response to that? Um, and I think also this is also very telling of do the businesses that are were required to enforce the mask mandate realize that it's bullshit um, and also understand that it's it's not something that either its employees or its customers want to abide by. And I think uh, it's pretty proof positive in direct response. United Delta Southwest American, which are the four biggest air carriers uh, uh, in the United States, States, they all did away with any mask requirement, as did JetBlue, Alaska, Spirit, and Frontier. Few other airlines have uh, followed course since then over the last couple of days. The airlines know that this is unnecessary, okay? When you're not required to wear a mask in any other aspect of society, but in this one controlled situation scenario, you're required to. I mean, it just seems like the federal government found the one, uh, the, the one aspect of American life that they are in complete control over that is a kind of indoor controlled environment and said, okay, okay, this one gives us plausible deniability. We'll just maintain this one mask requirement here. In a lot of other states that didn't have mask mandates through uh, late 2021 and early 2022, I mean, even more ridiculous, but even the bluest of blue states, New York and Los Angeles, that um, had mask requirements more generally for indoor activities through early 2022, even those have been lifted as of the last six weeks. So everyone's walking around essentially without a mask, or 95% of people are not wearing masks in, in any sort of circumstances whatsoever. But then when you go to an airport and get on a plane, then everybody has to wear a mask. Okay. In terms of stopping the spread of of a disease and of uh, uh, of a virus. I mean, if everybody's walking around without a mask in every other scenario, period, you can pretty much gauge whether or not the virus is going to spread generally and what the prevalence of the virus is beyond whether or not the the marginal difference um, in preventing spread by wearing masks. 85% of the time on an airplane because you're still allowed to, to eat and drink and lift the mask up to eat and drink. What marginal overall benefit does anyone think that that is providing in stopping the spread of, of COVID at this point, right? If it's spreading freely everywhere else, but you're stopping it in that limited, that limited circumstance, and you're not even necessarily stopping it because most people are wearing 
poorly fitted cloth masks and are lifting it up to eat and drink or go to the bathroom. Can you fathom how little actual impact this that mask mandate is having, period? It's not doing a goddamn thing, okay? So beyond that, where does this not make sense? There was one individual who's a doctor on Twitter named Eric Wadera. It's like he mentions that he feels safe wearing an N95 to see COVID patients in the hospital over the course of two years, right? So he understands the COVID patients are not always wearing masks, but as a doctor, he's wearing an N95 to prevent himself from getting COVID or from spreading it to, to others. But then the response to that is people thinking, well, there's no possible way that one can protect oneself on a plane anymore without universal cloth-based masking that allows for the exception when eating and drinking. Okay, so what's he describing? The absurdity that anyone who wants to wear an N95 for the entirety of a flight and not eat or drink on the flight, go ahead and do it, okay? By all means, if you're that concerned about getting COVID, have at it, okay? If if Eric would, Dr. Eric Wadera can feel comfortable being safe by wearing an N95 in hospitals around COVID patients for two years, you'll probably be fine on an airplane where very likely nobody has COVID and in worst case, a couple people do, right? And you're recirculating air the entire time. So the fact that there's, in once again, an act, the the notion that there is in aggregate any marginal benefit when most people are wearing Ill, poorly fitted cloth masks, everybody's eating or drinking. I mean, that's complete BS, right? Anyone who has particular concerns can wear the mask themselves. The overall impact of all these other people, most of whom are wearing cloth masks and who are eating and drinking, and there's just no, that's complete theater. It's complete pageantry. It's second only to the requirement that you have to put on a mask to enter a restaurant and then take it. you can take it off when you go sit down. We all know that the mask requirement for six seconds while you're getting up and going to the bathroom or leaving the restaurant does not have any marginal benefit whatsoever. So once again, anyone who is that concerned, an N95 mask worn for you know almost the entirety of a two, three, four hour flight, yeah, that's probably going to provide some protection, not that most people will need it anyways, but go ahead and do it, okay? Requiring everybody else to wear some mask when there's no requirement as to which type of mask to wear is complete nonsense. It has no practical benefit whatsoever. Aside from that, the mask mandate was going to expire a couple of weeks ago. Biden extended it into early May, uh, supposedly uh, under the claim that they needed to assess the severity of this new subvariant of Omicron, BA2. Well, you know, they've had time to assess that. And BA2, not that Omicron was really spreading or affecting anything. Anyways, there hasn't been a bump anywhere. OK, there was the most minuscule, uh, you know, like 10 percent bump in New York. And we are already coming from such a low basis. I mean, you go and look like uh, COVID prevalence and uh, cases in the hospital and the ICU are at its lowest point since essentially February 2000, uh, 2020. I mean, it's, this is non-existent. So going from essentially non-existent to slightly above non-existent, like spare me. Okay, that that was some significant bump that needed to be studied. If we want to look at other, uh, if we want to look at other jurisdictions where this subvariant seems to have hit earlier, well, in the UK, same thing. They experienced a slight bump just above what what their all time low had been, and then it went and plateaued out. Okay, so the jury is in. Okay, we know about BA two. It's not another wave of COVID. Um, Omicron. Beyond that, om- then you factor in Omicron's lack of severity in the first place, the even lower severity of the subvariant. And this is not the type of thing that needed to be studied. Okay. This is an endemic. This is an endemic disease at this point. The numbers are incredibly low and everybody is going about their business, living their life as they were before, not paying much attention. The only people who are paying attention to this are a handful of, you know, of hall monitor scolds on Twitter uh, and people in the Biden administration. There's no justification for this whatsoever. Beyond that, looking to do people actually believe that mask mandate, that this, that the, these limited mandates only on certain types of public transportation actually do anything? Do they maintain them? Do do, uh, other institutions and governing bodies maintain them in place when they don't have to? No, they do not. Illinois lifted its mask mandate on the state's public transportation, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, all these other jurisdictions on their public transportation, their MTAs, all lifted the mask mandate. Uh, New York, of course, goes ahead and maintains theirs. We'll see how long uh, they maintain theirs. But the vast majority of jurisdictions, the second that they weren't required to maintain the mandate via federal law, once once they were given cover to get rid of them, they got rid of them, just like the airlines did. Okay, Everybody knows uh, what what the general tenor and the general consensus are from businesses, from citizens, and they don't need, they have, other than the handful of people who are going to keep on wearing masks, uh, they, there's no desire. There's not public support for this mandate.
So what's the Biden administration's response? First off, it was pretty wishy-washy. Okay, they know it doesn't have public support. They know that this looks makes them look uh, continually suffocating. Like it just looks nonsensical. It's not helping them electorally. But conversely, they know that this ruling, if it's allowed to main, to remain in place, will set a bad precedent in in uh, essentially preventing them from uh, from the CDC from taking any number of actions in the future. Right. So this does set a bad precedent for gov- the government and government agents. If you have such a, a narrow interpretation of the Public Health Services Act of 1944, and there is an article in Politico today about you know discussing the internal battle in the uh, Biden administration over whether they even want to appeal this ruling, and it looks like they are going to appeal the ruling, but you know n- there's no bones about it. There's a lot of people in the Biden administration who realize they're looking stupid, who are advocating against appealing this and saying we almost got cover, and that continuing to require people to wear masks on planes and institute. This federal mandate, it's making you look bad because it looks ridiculous because it is ridiculous. Okay. And that this judge's, you know, super conservative ruling almost gave Biden cover. So, oh, well, well, it got struck down. You know, we can't, we can't uh, impose the mandate any further. So, we're not going to get, we're not going to bother you. We're not going to make you jump through the hoop of continuing to, uh, of continuing with this farce. But um, because they don't want to necessarily hamstring their public health agencies going forward for God knows what contingency. They may appeal it. I guess it would go directly to the Supreme Court. That should be an interesting session for the Supreme Court because, once again, you know the the conservative slant and bent of the Supreme Court got the ruling on the OSHA vaccine mandate correct. But I, I think you know these uh, these conservative justices. I think they may understand that this district court ruling was probably a little too narrow. You know, a, a narrow interpretation of the text of the legislation. Um, so I think it's gonna gonna be more interesting. You might get some conservative justice as you might break ranks and actually um, try to overturn the uh, the Florida District Court's ruling here. Um, I think that would be super interesting. But here's the most ridiculous thing about appealing this. This thing was meant to expire in early May anyways, right? By the time the Supreme Court would even hear it, right, it, it were going to be at a point at which it was already going to be, that the chances that that Biden was not going to extend this any further, right? They were going to let it, they were going to let the mandate expire in a couple weeks. This thing's not going to get hurt by the Supreme Court for at least another month or two at best if it is appealed, right? So let's say they reinstitute the mandate Te, you know, based purely on uh, in, in legal terms, it's going to be at a time when they, from a practical perspective, don't even want to institute the mandate any longer. So um, Joe Biden, I think it was a, it was a mistake. Uh, it was a political mistake to extend the mask mandate any further because it exposed it to being to being stricken down um, by a federal court judge. And now it puts them in this uncomfortable position about do, of doing something they know is not politically popular. So um, continual political missteps by Joe Biden. Uh, one last uh, point on this the uh the ceo of jet JetBlue, David Nealman. I mean, he put it best. He's very supportive of remove of striking down the mandate, and he acknowledges realities that it was incredibly frustrating having to police passengers continually. He knew it made his employees unhappy. It made for a worse travel experience overall. And as he put it, the, it, why can the government have the State of the Union without masks when we have to continue to mask people on airplanes? Okay, one of the many contradictions and conflicts and absurdities of continuing to require masks in the most narrow of circumstances. So um, Joe Biden continues to step on rakes politically, um, Should could be looking forward to just from a purely legal perspective, an interesting Supreme Court uh, uh, Supreme Court session on this. But for the moment, uh, go book your flights, guys. Flash those pearly whites. Let your freak flag fly and uh, no more masks on airplanes for the time being. Okay, so a juicy topic I've been waiting to get to. Elon Musk and his attempt to buy Twitter, an issue that's been dominating the public consciousness, the news cycle, lots of chatter about this and a lot of freakouts about this topic and his attempt here. And so I think it taking a survey of this issue, we have to wonder, why is this seemingly so important? So it begs a few questions specifically. One, why is Twitter important? Two, why is Elon interested in owning Twitter? Three, why are certain people, a lot of people, freaking out about this? And four, what would actually change about Twitter? news, 
information consumption and dispersal in American society if Elon is successful in this attempt. Okay, so everyone seems to question Elon's sincerity when he talks about um, these various projects or ventures that that he contemplates and one that he contemplated or talked about on social media that he seems to be looking to execute on is buying Twitter. Um, and so why don't we just go straight to the horse's mouth? I don't really think he's hiding anything, right? I think he's pretty transparent and sincere in uh, you know the nature of his interest in Twitter and why, why he He's going after it. So this all kind of started on March 26th when Elon uh, tweets out um, one. Well, March 25th, free speech is essential to a functioning democracy. Do you believe Twitter re- rigorously adheres to that principle? And then he took a poll and, and admonished his followers and those who participated in the poll to be very careful with their response. Next day, he follows that up with, given that Twitter serves as a de- the de facto public town square, failing to adhere to free speech principles fundamentally undermines democracy. What should be done? Okay, so Twitter, that that is what Twitter is. Yes, it is the de facto public town square. And in this respect, one something that I think a lot of people overlook is that regardless of how many people are on Twitter, participate in Twitter overall, the people whose voices matter, right? The people who, whose their position and function in society is to be a funnel for narratives, news, information, for determining what the narratives are, filtering information about current events. They're all on Twitter and they're all heavy t- Twitter users for the most part, right? The people who write for either one legacy news publications or two, the new digital publications or three, just happen to have a a strong, loud public voice during the social and digital media era. They're all they're all power users on Twitter. So what goes on on Twitter really does shape the national discourse. And also, and this is something that I think a lot of people overlook, if you're wondering why there's been so much conformity amongst the media class during the age of Twitter is because they're all on the same platform scoping out each other's work all day long. Think about it. Essentially, imagine if in any or other profession, every person, every member of that profession had to put their work on kind of a public message board for all their colleagues, not just the ones they work with, but every Everyone else in their industry to to review, look at, ogle, and and comment and criticize on a daily basis. If you're a journalist in modern America, that's what you do. Everybody puts their work out there. You're tweeting it out, whether through your personal account or through the account of whatever publication you write for. And everybody else in the the, the media industry, every other journalist, gets the opportunity to come to to essentially through the same funnel comment on that. And I think that drives a ton of conformity because journalists don't they're worried about what their colleagues say. Okay. So that's the that is the function of Twitter. It truly is the de facto public town square. And in that respect is not, you know, it's not like other commercial and private companies. It is very much like, you know, the digital version of uh, of telecom companies, of the telephone company. Right. And it's it reflects more of a utility in a common carrier than a variety of other public companies. So I think anyone who wants to dispute that it's not to be taken seriously. Okay, Twitter, for better, for worse, it serves a vital role in in uh, modern society and in our democracy. And if you want to further proof of that, I mean, look no further than Donald Trump. I mean, the president of the United States was his primary communication tool and essentially the the number one salvo, the number one, you know, uh, step taken to oppose him was to remove him from this platform. So it's of unquestionable important uh, importance to our society and to our democracy. Okay, so why is Elon interested in it? Um, I once again, I don't think he's being sneaky here. He's telling everybody why he's interested in it because of its importance and because he thinks that it's not operating uh, in adherence to free speech principles and he believes in free speech principles. So that begs the question, well, should Twitter operate uh, in alignment with free speech principles? And everybody goes to, though, it's a private company. Free speech is only about the First Amendment, uh, which protects you, protects you from the government. And that's, of course, bullshit, because regardless of whether you have to abide by uh, uh, free speech principles, where you're le- whether you're legally obligated as a company, it should be the guiding moral principle. The First Amendment and free speech are good things. Thus, if you run a company that serves certain uh, communication functions, you should, that are as broad as Twitter, you should try to adhere to those to, to those principles. And then they'll also go, well, free speech is not you know unconditional. There are limitations on free speech. And yes, of course, there are limitations on free speech. Everyone goes to the example of yelling fire in a crowded theater. No, very few of any people who are free speech advocates. Um, 
um, particularly of Elon's ilk, are arguing that should be no limitations on free speech. All of these social media platforms always had community guidelines, but those community guidelines operated one way in the era from, let's call it 2006 to 2012-14, and have operated another way recently. The types of things that were not considered protected speech, right, like defamation, um, threat, threats of physical violence, things like that, Those nobody's ever been arguing that you should be able to do that on Twitter. Those, you send a tweet saying, hey, I'm going to come murder you uh, at 12.15 on Tuesday. Tuesday, right? I mean, nobody's arguing for that. But these platforms have continued to drift and stray from more traditional free speech, free speech principles, which included a, a few categories of prohibited speech. Now, what is prohibited is far broader, including everybody's favorite word, misinformation. Okay, misinformation, unless it constitutes direct defamation, misinformation and defamation, two very different things. Uh, uh, unless it constitutes defamation, misinformation has never been uh, uh, prohibited speech. Okay. Defamation is an assertion of fact about a specific person that is false and damaging, right? So if you claim falsely without proof, um, uh, this person raped me on this night. And if to the extent that there is incontrovertible evidence that that is a, a, a false factual claim about a specific identifiable person, okay, that's a different story, right? If you can put forth evidence to a, to a speech platform um, proving that this is false, then I could def that would seem to fall within uh, uh, a tab or uh, unprotected speech on a social media platform. Misinformation is a completely different thing. That could be assertions of facts or claims not, ha not having to do with any specific person. They could just be things that people say or assert as beliefs or facts. And they're so ill-shapen, it is so vague, trying to identify uh, what is quote-unquote misinformation or simply factually untrue is just a th an impossible and impractical task. And let's be honest, to the extent that the social media platforms have tried to take on that task, the record's not very, very good. If you look back in terms of which broad categories that people have claimed are misinformation or where misinformation is rife, um, whether it's about uh, the the uh, origination of COVID in the lab, in the you know the possibility of the lab leak from the Wuhan lab, social media platforms got that one wrong. Um, the claims around Donald Trump's supposed collusion or things going on with Russiagate and his involvement or non-involvement with the Russian government uh, around, you know, the, the the kind of context of the 2016 election. I mean, no shortage of misinformation or claims about Donald Trump's involvement with the Russians that ended up either being one proven demonstrably false or two was never proven to be true. The platforms didn't have much of a problem with people making those claims. That was never considered misinformation, even stuff like the Steele dossier, which was complete nonsense nonsense and was never supported in the first place okay anyone who goes and says hey, someone tweets out that you know everybody hey everybody knows that the russians have a tape of donald trump being peed on by some hooker and they're using it to blackmail him and he's a, a russian uh, a russian agent okay uh no more than a handful of people have put that out on social media and nobody you know, it was never identified as misinformation right and continually misinformation only seems to be identified in one direction right and we'll get to some people's claims of uh, false equivalency on that in just a second. So um, why are people freaking out about Elon potentially buying Twitter? It's because let's be honest, the, the current censorship regime or content moderation regime on Twitter is there. And like I said, it, it only moves in one direction and it is there to enforce uh, uh, conformity around specific narratives, right? Not every narrative, uh, you know, there's diversity of thought around a number of different topics on Twitter, but when things start to get touchy, right around the touchy, more high, high voltage topics. Okay. If you're, if you, if you're concerned, if you, if there's a tangible concern about what you may say that might get you censored or, you know, uh, subject to content moderation, it, it almost universally swings in one direction. So the people who swing in the other direction, um, the, the idea that they can no longer enforce narrative conformity concerns them a lot. And then they try to couch it in claims about racism and harassment. And uh, I think it's very disingenuous. But once again, we'll get to more on that in a second. And then uh, also the question of what would actually change if Elon took control. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. So what would change if he took control? Clearly, he wants 
uh, broader. He wants more narrow community guidelines. He wants to take a little bit of a foot off the gas pedal of content moderation, and he wants to reduce the things that you can say on Twitter that would get you banned or suspended. Okay, that's plain at its core. That's pretty much what it is. There's a number of other functional concerns that Elon has. Just like people, if people think that his only interest in Twitter is simply censoring less people, no, he comments uh, quite often on specific um, feature sets and functional changes that he thinks in terms of. Of, you know, questions about an edit edit button or allowing for more extensive tweet threads thing and making it easier to access threads, things of that nature. So he, he's also a tech guy and a product guy at his core, and he wants to make a number of functional feature changes to Twitter as well. So where does, as I said before, there you've, we've seen different eras and phases of content moderation on Twitter. It used to be far, there was far less censorship, less content moderation, and, uh, and you had to be far less concerned about what you're what you're saying on Twitter uh, back during the early 2010s. So let's let's look at how Twitter handles this in, internally. Um, there is something called the Twitter Trust and Safety Council. This was announced February 9th, 2016. And here's how here's the press release from Twitter. On Twitter, every voice has the power to shape the world. We see this power every day from activists who use Twitter to mobilize citizens to content creators who use Twitter to shape opinion. To ensure people can continue to express themselves freely and safely on Twitter, we must provide more tools and policies. With hundreds of millions of tweets sent per day, the volume of content on Twitter is massive, which makes it extraordinary, extraordinarily complex to strike the right balance between fighting abuse and speaking truth to power. Okay, so they acknowledge it. They know what, what role Twitter serves and the balance that they're trying to strike between, as they put it, um, um, uh, fighting abuse and speaking truth to power, allowing people to express themselves but protecting people from harassment uh, using these digital tools and these channels of communication. That's why we are announcing the formation of the Twitter Trust and Safety Council, a new and foundational part of our strategy to ensure that people feel safe expressing them on Twitter. As we develop products and programs, our Trust and Safety Council will help us tap into the expertise and input of organiza organizations at the intersection of these issues more efficiently and quickly. These will include Safety Act advocates, academics, and researchers focused on minors, media literacy, digital citizenship and efforts around greater greater compassion and empathy on the internet. Okay, so here's what Twitter has. They have internal employees who are specifically looking at content moderation from a perspective of making sure that information on Twitter is accurate and that people are not being harassed. But who are these advocates, academics, and other researchers that they're looking to? If you think that these people aren't slanted politically in one direction, you're crazy. OK, so uh, you have to trust that the sources that they're looking to for input on these issues are even and well balanced and have free speech in mind. OK, so we could imagine if Elon Musk takes a, is successful in his bid to own Twitter, that the Trust and Safety Council you know, will either be one disbanded, two will have its authority reduced or three will be required to have a more diverse set and politically balanced set of voices and organizations uh, uh, participating and, and counseling that council from from the outside. Okay, so that, sir, that begs the question of what has the Twitter Trust and Safety Council accomplished? Has it made Twitter a kinder, gentler, a softer, nicer place than it was in 2012, 13, 14, 15? I mean, it doesn't really seem so, right? I mean, you're still seeing just an, an intense amount of vitriol on the platform. Um, I, I'm sure that there are a handful of instances where people are rightfully being suspended for true harassment, right? As opposed to being suspended for uh, all the high profile suspensions are almost universally not for for harassing people, but for simply expressing unpopular views that are then uh, labeled as either one hateful or two misinformation. And once again, to try to pretend that that it's even handed is is just completely ridiculous. So um, is Elon's bid for Twitter really make Twitter 2014 again? And if he did end up making it 2014 again, does that really change? So what what it, what necessarily does that change about communication on social media platforms in American public discourse? I don't think it changes a ton. So another really interesting perspective was put out there by Mike Solana. Um, you know, he's a, a tech entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and a commentator on a lot of free speech and political issues. He's got a website called Pirate Wires, which I think is really, really good. Um, and he always has a, a really, you know, fun and lively and interesting perspective on these things. Um, and here's some of what he put, uh, some of how he described it. Um, so Wednesday, Twitter CEO Parag Agrawal announced Elon would join the company's board and Team Yay censorship lost its mind. Their stated points of concern were and remain as 
as numerous as they are incoherent, as the hive mind hasn't yet settled on a common argument and almost none of Elon's critics actually believe what they're saying. Is that that seems to be the case. There's not really a common argument. Nobody can really pinpoint what they think is going to go so wrong if Elon buys Twitter. It thinks that all of a sudden, um, uh, it, you know, Nazi propaganda, everyone's going to be flying swastikas in their profile pic on Twitter. Is that what they think is going to happen? I don't know. They seem to be very vague in their assumptions and their claims about what's going to go wrong if he does. As Solana goes on, the real reason members of the censorship class are angry is that they are currently empowered by the most dominant speech platforms in history to amplify their own narrow voices and to silence their political enemies. This tremendous, wildly dangerous privilege is now perceived as threatened by the introduction of Musk to Twitter's board. The question is free speech. Elon's detractors believe unfettered conversations are dangerous. Elon believes free speech is essential to a functioning democracy. The censorship people thought they had the game on lock, but power has a way of shifting, which is why the wise among, amongst us tend to want it balanced. The hall monitors are furious. That's a, a great articulation of what the reaction around Musk has been. And essentially, they don't have any specific concerns that they can articulate. They know that the platform had been swinging in their direction and willing to enforce their mores and values. And they know with, that with Musk at the helm that they won't be able to enforce that anymore. They know that he's a wild card and that he wants things uh, uh, essentially you know, more balanced and more open. And when things are more open, they don't get to punish their political opponents as much as they would like to. Okay, let's be honest. That's, that's essentially what it is. Um, and, you know, he's also uh, has some interesting thoughts on Elon's place in society and as a leader of the tech world. Um, at the time of Steve Jobs' death, there was a popular question of who would assume his de facto position as industry leader. Today, it's hard to even imagine a world in which the role does not belong to Elon. For direction, inspiration, and vision concerning the very best of what technologists have to offer, men and women of the industry point to the man who lands rockets. Unjustifiably, we share his victories, and he stands for our failures. The pressure is unfair, and the kind of teenage boyishness with which Musk approaches social media has always struck me as a bit of a re of rebelliousness in response. That's the, it's Elon's kind of tenor on social media. Yeah, it's kind of a, a freewheeling boyishness where he's having fun, where he believes that there are no boundaries, um, whether, you know, whether content moderation wise or culturally. Right. And he ha he has a different approach. Like he'll poke fun at people. He'll be a little mischievous, but it's not ill spirited and it's really not harmful in any way, shape or form. And the people, the hall monitors, the ones who want to be uptight and, you know, want this kind of enforced uh, enforce sensitivity unless it's there unless they're the ones being mean it just it just eats at them it pisses them off as Solana goes on, in this age of social media, it was inevitable a figure of such influence would come to evoke love and hate in intimate daily measure, the deafening magnitude of which Jobs could not have imagined. But of particular interest is the strangest strangeness with which even Elon's fiercest critics in derision cannot help imbue their most hated villain with supernatural, almost godlike powers. This so this is interesting that it, it, the freak out about what Elon might do to Twitter is evident of his power and of his influence. He's just a guy. He's just a guy you probably wants to loosen the reins and have Twitter do a little less censorship and add a, a, add a few features. Yet his enemies and his detractors think he's all powerful. Like they're like Elon's going to turn this this into his own personal fiefdom, even if he could. Look how difficult it is to for a company to wrap their arms around the infinite amount of communication and interactions that go on on this platform. Like, there's only so much influence that Elon Musk could exert on Twitter, even if he wanted to, right? So it's crazy that they have such concerns. His enemies continue to fan the flames. They're feeding him. They're feeding the mythology of how powerful and, su and supposedly evil this guy is. They don't really get it, right? Well, what has this guy done? He's he's made it easier for people to make direct payments via you know uh, via digital banking. He's landed a rocket on the moon and created a really fun, interesting car that runs on electricity. Like I, I don't. What has this guy done that is supposedly such a harm to society? I mean, a, a lot of people look to uh, what they were trying to tag him on is just that he's so rich and he's not paying his fair share in taxes. Then he goes ahead and pays the largest tax bill in the history of America, $11 billion last year. I mean, at every turn, he seems to negate whatever his uh, opponent's arguments are. Um, so it, it seems that this freakout is just purely about control. With Elon at the helm, they know that the censorship regime that they are supportive of, that they propagate, no, it, it, that day is over, okay? that That's in the dustbin of history. Um, so we've gone over why it's important, why Elon is interested, what people are freaking out about, 
about and what would actually, we're speculating on what would actually change. Now let's go on to, will Elon actually be able to execute on this purchase? Is he going to be successful in this bid? So clearly he's being opposed, okay? The Twitter board of directors, um, and this actually broaches up an interesting point. One of the things that, tw- that Elon has uh, identified um, is how little the board of directors owns of the company. A couple days ago, a guy named Chris Bakey, uh, he's the founder of Lasky, he, tweet, uh, he tweeted out a, uh, a grid w- listing the Twitter board of directors and their owners, the amount of ownership in the company. And I mean, it's it's minuscule. You've got Jack uh, Dorsey at about 2.2%. Prague, the CEO, is at six one hundredths of a percent. You've got one board member who doesn't own anything, another one that owns one one thousandth. And I mean, most of the board members here own like three one thousandths of the company. And I mean, I understand that Twitter's a big company, but these are... Are, these are board members who truly do not have skin in the game. Elon responded to that that tweet with that grid. Uh, it says, wow, with Jack departing, the Twitter board collectively owns almost no shares. Objectively, their economic interests are simply not aligned with the shareholders. I think that's a really interesting point. Okay, so these shareholders who have very little stake, first off, I mean, most of them, you, you look into their backgrounds, I mean, they, they don't necessarily seem qualified to be directing um, uh, the most important communication platform in the history of the United States. their past experiences do not have relevance to that. Um, But aside from that, they go ahead and they institute what's called a a poison pill, um, which in response to Elon's, uh, essentially in response response to Elon's offer, um, which was about $43 billion, currently owns about 9% of the company, they uh, institute a new rule that if anyone uh, acquires more than 15% of the company, they'll flood the company with new shares, dilute everybody's ownership and kind of, you know, uh, and kind of uh, squeeze that holder down, right? That's called the poison pill. So, I mean, how could someone theoretically get around that? One, you know, if Elon was able to find other uh, people who were aligned with his interests who all wanted to then accumulate, a couple people who wanted to accumulate, let's call it 10, 13, 14% uh, of Twitter up to the poison pill threshold and then combine with those individuals to take majority voting control of Twitter, he theoretically could do that. I mean, the one name that keeps on getting kicked around for that is Peter Thiel. And I'd be shocked if Peter Thiel is, is, you know, sitting this one out on the sidelines. seems to have a lot of interest in these issues. Um, and so beyond that, you know, what what cards does Elon have to play? Um, there is the prospect. He's a major shareholder, right? And there is a responsibility of the board of directors to the shareholders to maximize value. And, you know, he could claim or institute a shareholder lawsuit that in denying this his bid and his offer, which would provide the shareholders with, uh, with a nice win, with some serious uh, appreciation and a great stock price, um, that, you know, that they've violated their duties to the company. A gentleman, named Romine Sheth on Twitter. He's a serial entrepreneur, and he actually did a great job of summarizing uh, the corporate law around this issue and the prospects of a shareholder lawsuit in identifying that the board of directors has two primary fiduciary duties. One is a duty of care, and one is a duty of loyalty. The duty of care is a requirement that the board makes decisions with reasonable diligence and prudence. The board must, one, assure, uh, be assured that they have the right information to act, and two, devote sufficient time to review the information, right? So in response to a... Uh, uh, a uh, uh, purchase bid, they have to show that they uh, took the time to look into it, to analyze all the pro- proper information to determine whether or not to take the offer. Um, beyond that, the duty of loyalty is the second fiduciary duty. It necessitates the board act in the best interest of shareholders and doesn't put personal interest ahead of these interests. For instance, directors can't have an undisclosed interest in the transaction that is different from stockholders. So if Elon wanted to bring a lawsuit against the against the board of directors, against the company for turning down his offer, he'd have to show that they violated one of those two duties. Um, usually a board is able to protect himself, protect themselves under the business judgment rule that essentially gives, uh, particularly in Delaware, gives the board of directors a ton of leeway in saying, you know, hey, we, we have the leeway and we have the authority to make a decision in our, our reasonable business judgment. And just because, you know, it might provide uh, shareholders with a nice return doesn't mean that it was the it was a proper decision for the company. And given that the stock price was recently within the last year above the price that Elon is offering to pay, I mean they might be able to hide behind the business judgment rule. Another way to put it is if the board can show a rational basis for its decisions, the court will typically side with the board. However, there is a stricter standard when there's a hostile takeover, which is what this is. In that case, the standard is when directors unilaterally adopt a defensive mechanism such as a poison pill, then the defensive mechanism has to pass a more strict test of reasonableness 
fullness and proportionality. So that's what Elon would be going after, um, claiming that you know that the defensive mechanism that they took in instituting the poison pill was not reasonable nor proportional. And also, I'm sure he would make the claim that he the that the board is cutting their nose to spite their face, and you know, and preventing shareholders from assuming significant returns just because they don't like they're not a fan of how culturally and politically Elon is intended to run the platform if he is successful in his bid. So, um, yeah, if you want to look up this guy, Romine Sheath, R-O-M-E-E-N-S-H-E-T-H, he's got a couple great threads on the corporate law texture and context surrounding uh, you know, what, what options Elon might have at his disposal. And if he's unsuccessful in that bid, I mean, he's already said it. Once again, I think he's being genuine, honest, and transparent. He says he's going to dump all his stock. He's got about 9% of the company. If he just goes ahead and dumps all that stock in one fell swoop, it's going to tank the stock price. And that's a lot of pain on, on Twitter shareholders and on the company. It's not going to reflect well on the board. And he also might be hoping that other shareholders, uh, that the prospects of that convince other major shareholders or just uh, in aggregate enough, maybe smaller or mid-sized shareholders to put, to continue to put pressure on the board. Um, who knows? There could be some, you know, cultural prohibitions on that, that the other shareholders might not want to be seen as publicly aligning with Elon, you know, for their own re- reputational concerns. Um, admittedly, I'm not familiar with what the timeline is here. I'm sure we will start to get some movement on this one way or the other. I mean, beyond that, I can't imagine if Elon's bid is not successful, that he just drifts quietly into the night. I mean, he clearly believes this to be an important issue, free speech and communication from the, the you know, what are the de facto public squares, the social media, the major social media companies and platforms. I and mean, he believes this to be very important. And he's not a guy uh, who, he's a guy who is inclined towards action. So if he's unsuccessful with the bid uh, with Twitter, I imagine he's going to start working on his own platform. So should be super interesting to watch how it plays out. I'm not going to make any secret about it. I want to see him succeed. I want to see him loosen some of the reins on content moderation and censorship and just do away with the ridiculous notion that these platforms um, are equipped and authorized or, or have the best interest of the public in mind in identifying what they believe to be misinformation or disinformation. Okay, they don't have the skill. They're not good at it. And and nobody granted this them this authority in society. So best of luck to Elon. We will be monitoring this situation, I can assure you. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. Okay, another big battle in the culture wars this week. Taylor Lorenz versus the libs of TikTok. So who are the players in this battle? Okay, Taylor Lorenz is someone who fashions herself, quote-unquote, a tech reporter. She currently works for the Washington Post. She used to work for the New York Times. She recently left, uh, making no shortage of enemies in the process at the New York Times. No, uh, a bunch of snide remarks as she exited that institution. So Taylor is a woman in her early 40s, I believe, who you know it kind of embeds herself in with players involved in teenage digital stardom, right? Big TikTokers, Instagrammers, and tries to write think pieces on them and whatnot, and decides to kind of inject herself into a lot of controversies in those worlds and a lot of situations where uh, people are getting canceled for supposed bad behavior, whether it's managers who are claimed to have, you know, mistreated their TikToker or Instagram or YouTuber clients, people who might, uh, you know, some of these digital stars, mostly very young people who might have can uh, uh, engaged in some wrong act or whatnot. She very famously got egg in her face on Clubhouse late 2020 when she falsely accused uh, venture capitalist Mark Andreessen of calling someone a retard in a room. And it wasn't Mark Andreessen. It was clearly a bad faith and kind of embarrassing and juvenile attempt by Taylor Lorenz to uh, uh, attack and fabricate malfeasance against someone that she considers a political enemy because, hey, Mark Andreessen is on the side of free speech, does not have much uh, love or affection for liberal causes. And Taylor Lorenz is out uh, playing moral enforcers. She's the wicked witch of cancellation. She wants to find reasons to cancel people. She's a pro- political operative, okay? The idea that she is a, a quote-unquote journalist just looking to do stories and explain to people the world of digital media and digital stardom and digital talent, I mean, that, that's kind of laughable. She's out there to find controversies, inject herself into them, and try to use her platform to punish those th- those that she thinks are guilty of wrongdoing. Libs of TikTok. This is a Twitter and an Instagram account that for the most part pretty much just takes videos that are, are already publicly available on TikTok that certain TikTokers put out there that display people doing engaging in kind of 
weird or perverted or strange behavior associated with modern progressivism, whether it's uh, talking about, you know, their own white guilt and engaging in in self-denunciation rituals and engaging in strange, weird racial pathology or more so in what was uh, what led to this controversy in this battle, um, strange sexual proclivities. Uh, gender ideology, you know, many times the people in these videos uh, kind of adopt a strange, progressive, artsy aesthetic with dyed green hair and nose rings and, and this and that. Um, but think about the types of strange and kind of extreme radical racial and, and gender politics that you see on the progressive side. And these libs of TikTok push this on display. But once again, it's really, it's almost predominantly, and I think universally, simply reposting videos that people have deliberately and voluntarily already put out there. It's letting the videos speak for themselves. And the videos happen to elicit a reaction. Right. And so the account has become prominent, has become popular because it's finding strange stuff to show. OK, it's finding people engaged in very odd, odd behavior and it's putting that on display and it's eliciting a certain reaction. Right. If the, the behavior on display did not elicit certain reactions, the, the, the account would be irrelevant. This wouldn't be an issue in the first place. But because in a lot of instances, a lot of the people that uh, appear on the libs of TikTok account and are, are engaging in this strange behavior that they're sharing on TikTok, they end up being school teachers. And many times school teachers for very young children. And there, there's a, scene, a very strange pattern of people who are uh, elementary school teachers talking about how they engage in instruction and curriculum with their students around kind of, you know, alternative sexual preferences, sexual orientation and gender ideology, transgenderism in circumstances that are by any estimation inappropriate. OK, and this is sparking quite out, you know, some outrage and a reaction even legislatively. And a lot of people even tie. Uh, the recent uh, legislation in Florida, which was then followed up by some other states, kind of prohibiting, you know, inappropriate teaching of sexual orientation and gender ideology to, in the case of Florida, was kindergarten through third graders. Um, where some people are even saying that the videos that libs of TikTok posts are, in certain respects, motivating this legislation. And I don't think that's actually too outlandish of a claim. This account is having uh, its its content is very viral. I mean, it's this account is making an impact one way or another on the public discourse. Um, so Taylor Lorenz decided to do what I'm sure she would call a profile on and try this was a, so libs of TikTok wasn't anonymous okay it did not have a name behind it right Taylor Lorenz took it upon herself to go and try to expose a quote-unquote docs or expose the identity of the person behind the libs of TikTok account okay and uh, as this as this story was approaching being released you know it, the libs of TikTok account was trying to put Taylor Lorenz's behavior as a journalist on display and published a bunch of the materials. And uh, the, here, here was Lorenz's message to the libs of TikTok account, um, essentially trying to elicit commentary for the story. From Taylor. Hi, I'm just following up here. You've been mentioned as the administrator of the Libs of TikTok account on Twitter, and I need to turn my story in today. Is that your account? Please let me know ASAP because you're, as listen to this, you're being implicated as starting a hate campaign against LGBTQ people. If you're unaffiliated with the account, I want to be sure to set the record straight. Okay, so listen, this was not a profile, right? This was not just trying to explain a newsworthy account or a newsworthy person to the public. This was an attack. This was a, a political opters. This this was activist journalist that there that it was an accused that literally an account that literally just reposts videos that people voluntarily put out into the public sphere on TikTok. Simply reposting those videos is inciting a hate campaign against the LBGTQ community. Okay, um, so we we know what Taylor Lorenz was trying to do here, and then becomes a conversation of is this proper journalism? Do you dox private citizens? Um, is there any? Not a guarantee, but expectation of privacy. If you don't want to be exposed on on the internet, and you choose to have an account that is anonymous, unless you're engaged in some real some real wrongdoing, should you be able to remain anonymous? Um, and Taylor Lorenz and the accusations are that you know this person was engaged in wrongdoing and thus deserved to be exposed. Once again, inciting a hate campaign. Okay, so let's look at the question of are they inciting a hate campaign? Well, here's the thing: it's hard to claim that someone's engaging in a hate campaign when you're literally just mirroring people's behavior and content out to the world okay and some people would claim that these videos were being taken out of context but I don't think that claim holds true this account literally just took TikToks that were already released displaying weird behavior and reposted it with very little editorial for the most part but in some expect in some respects 
uh, explaining what these people were engaged in. Thus far in all the criticism of the libs of TikTok account, there's almost zero claim that anything they said was untrue or mischaracterized anything. It's mostly just that they don't like the rea- they don't like the reaction of society to what the libs of TikTok account is exposing because a lot of these these teachers, a lot of these, you know, libs of TikTok who are being reposted, they don't they don't have big profiles. They don't have big followings. So not many people are aware of these videos. Then their video might get reposted on the libs of TikTok account and boom, their behavior is exposed to a much a much wider audience. And in a lot of cases, these are people who are admitting very openly and being enthusiastically promoting that they discuss really inappropriate uh, stuff about sexuality and sexual orientation and gender ideology with children and that they do so very proudly. Um, And to say that it's a hate campaign, that parents and the public at large might react negatively to this, I think is bullshit, right? I mean, if you don't, if you don't want to, if you're a public school teacher, if you teach young children, you have a certain responsibility. If their parents and the public at large are reacting dis favorably to what you're injecting into the curriculum and into these children's lives, that's notable and you, you need to take note of that. That is not a hate campaign. So let's look at just a couple of these, uh, the examples of the types of things that the libs of TikTok account are, are exposing to the public that are eliciting some criticism and in some cases some punishment for the teachers that are once again, they are publicly posting this stuff. Okay, a first grade teacher records an identity share Zoom call with K through second graders where he spoke about being trans. And this is a quote from from the video when he says that he's teaching this to the K through to second grade students when babies are born the doctor looks and makes a guess on whether the baby is a boy or a girl sometimes the doctor is wrong if they are right the baby is cisgender you shouldn't be teaching that to six-year-olds okay that's not a hate can exposing that is not a hate campaign exposing that is exposing inappropriate instruction from an elementary school teacher to impressionable young children Another one is a woman who proclaimed herself to be a magical pleasure worker who runs a sexy summer camp for children in rural Connecticut and Kentucky. Sorry, you shouldn't be running a sexy summer camp for children. That's not appropriate. That is behavior that is war- criticism is warranted and should be exposed. That is not that is not trying to generate a pile on on people because someone is is gay. Okay, the the defining characteristic of what is being exposed is not that the person is a homosexual or is transgender or whatnot or fits that category. Is that they're injecting inappropriate aspects of sexuality into the lives of children? Okay, those are two completely different things. There's the vast, vast majority of homosexual uh, or LBGTQ teachers are not doing these things. The uh, the LBGTQ teachers that are not doing this stuff have nothing to worry about or not doing anything wrong. There's no, They're not going to be exposed. There's not going to be a hate campaign incited against them because all they are, they, they're not doing anything inappropriate with children. This is relegated just to the people who are clearly doing so. Beyond that, you've got a, an assistant professor at Old Dominion University who outright very openly openly explains that they're trying to normalize the term minor attracted person, MAP. Minor attracted person means a pedophile. They're trying to normalize pedophilia. This isn't this is to college kids, not to school children. I'm sorry. People trying to advocate for or normalize or sanitize pedophilia. Yeah, if you're gonna go openly admit that in a public forum and post it on social media, you can't blame whoever reposts it for the type of hate you get. A theater in the UK is advertising a family sex show. This is for children age five and up. A family sex show that's that people are promoting as appropriate for kids as young as age five, that is not okay. Once again, not a hate campaign, exposure of perverted behavior that needs to, that deserves public censure. Okay, so there's definitely an argument that the woman behind this account, her name turns out to be Shia Rachik. She's actually an Orthodox Jewish woman from New York and a real estate agent. There's definitely a, a an argument to be made that what she is doing has such impact and is now a matter of public concern, and her her identity is newsworthy. And it's it, you're not there's no breach of journalistic ethics to go and discover that and expose who this person is. But it's clearly being done by Taylor Lorenz in a way to portray her as inciting hate campaigns. Listen, some of these teachers who are exposed once again from their own videos they're posting on the internet okay some of these teachers are suffering professional consequences because elementary school curriculums and teaching children is not a free marketplace of ideas okay there's a responsibility given by the citizens to the public school system to properly instruct and treat the children that it puts in its care okay while parents are at work during the day and while that while the children are being educated okay so the idea that ooh, we should expose all children to all, all ideas no that that is not a problem this is not this is not Twitter okay it's for parents need to be able to regulate what their kids get 
exposed to in school. So there are going to be some professional consequences to some people who openly admit to injecting perverted sexual orientation and sexual curriculum into what they teach school children. Okay, so look who's doing this. This is the ultimate cry bully, Taylor Lorenz. She calls any criticism of her on the internet, and listen, she gets a lot of it, as harassment, right? Uh, But sorry, Taylor, you're the one who's injecting yourself into these controversies. If you want to go play Wicked Witch of Cancellation, then you're going to have, if you don't want, if you don't want to deal with the heat, then get out of the goddamn kitchen, okay? The internet is a harsh place. You're not the only person who has people criticizing them, attacking them, and in certain cases, harassing them. Uh, This is, this, if you're not built for it, then you shouldn't be involving yourself in it. But every time that Taylor Lorenz has no hesitations about direct that type of hate and negative attention and harassment towards someone else and then goes and she conducted some ridiculous sappy interview on MSNBC a couple weeks ago where she's crying and sobbing uh, about uh, the you know the negative attention that she gets on the internet I- I'm sorry you're not getting any sympathy from me Taylor okay you want to be someone who is going and trying to incite hate mobs and smear campaigns against others you may think it's morally justified but if you want to be that person you got to accept that you're in the trenches okay and there's going to be some blowback. I mean, Glenn Greenwald, who's someone who gets uh, the uh, incredibly nasty messages and harassment on the internet all the time, and who also is homosexual, might I add, I mean, he doesn't let Taylor get away with this. And he points to how two weeks ago, two weeks ago after before she went and decided to dox um, this woman behind the libs of TikTok account, she responded to a you know some kind of pithy comment about online harassment. Uh, Taylor Lorenz was like, I know you're joking, but doxing, stalking, trying to hurt and smear people's loved ones, threatening them, it's not okay in any situation. Listen, go remember what how Taylor Lorenz termed the email that she sent to the libs of TikTok account trying to verify whether or not the individual was the person behind it. Essentially, hey, sorry, uh, you know, a, a nice life that you got, but you're being implicated in a hate campaign against LBGTQ uh, individuals. So, you know, w- want to get your comment on the topic because you got some trouble brewing. She does exactly what she claims that she is a victim of. She's a total cry bull and it's total hypocrisy. As Greenwald puts it, do you not see how corporate journalists have created a framework where they can do anything to anyone they want and nobody can do anything Thing to them, including criticize them because it generates quote unquote harassment. That's what goes on here. They go and attack people. They go and try to ruin people's lives and smear people with, with no hesitation whatsoever because they think they have the moral imper- uh, imperative. But when they get criticized in return, that's harassment. They simply want a, a fail safe excuse to dismiss any criticism of their work and their tactics whatsoever. It's completely cheap and it's disingenuous and it's manipulative. Okay, so beyond that, is there any valid criticism of the libs of TikTok account? I mean, I think there actually could be. There's one individual who happened to to be able to see this entire situation with a clear lens and and put out some, you know, very even-handed thoughts on this topic. His name is Peter Savodnik. He's, believe it or not, a writer for Vanity Fair, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but Vanity Fair seems to now actually be putting out some quality content on occasion. So he broke down a few bullet points around this topic. One. Uh, Taylor Lorenz piece is poorly written and edited. The post should be embarrassed, but probably isn't. Okay, so Taylor Lorenz, first off, is just a bad journalist. She's not good. She's not talented with language. She's not a talented storyteller. She's a bad writer, period. Number two, it neglects to discuss in any substantive way the videos that have made libs of TikTok so prominent. The the themes, ideas, and arguments that have upset so many. Okay, so if you think that this is inspiring hate against these LGBTQ individuals, you need to at some point wrestle with why this is the reaction, right? Because this doesn't seem to be the reaction of society of anyone just to people who happen to be homosexual or transgender. It only happens to be the reaction uh, to specific behavior. So the themes, ideas, and arguments that are once again, that are in the videos that the, the libs of TikTok post that once again are put out voluntarily, voluntarily by the people in the videos. They're just reposts of already public content. Taylor Lorenz makes no no effort to actually wrestle with whether or not what's being portrayed in these videos is appropriate or whether it is justified and valid that a lot of parents find this stuff to be offensive and troubling and worthy of contacting schools and school districts for potential consequences. He goes on. In an ideal universe, it would have reported on the content that has outraged so many parents. The role of the reporter, presumably, is not to decide whether those parents should or should not be outraged, but to delve into the anger to try to make sense of it. And that's perfect. That's exactly the it is pure judgment on Lorenz's part, right, uh, that she believes whatever the reactions are to the libs of TikTok videos are mean and evil and wrong, and there's no attempt whatsoever to examine why or how or see if there is validity to the anger and outrage in response to them. 
But Lorenz was apparently uninterested in all that. That would have required empathy. Her piece reflects the brokenness of uh, mainstream media discourse, which doesn't engage but talks past, trafficking in half-truths and ad hominem attacks in pursuit of ever-narrowing slivers of audience. The thing is, as its audience has grown, libs of TikTok has gotten worse. Its videos have shifted from the undeniably outrageous to those that are up for interpretation. In a rush to placate the like, likes of Tucker Carlson, it has lowered, lowered its standards. Finding good stuff is hard. Listen, that is a valid criticism because it acknowledges that the libs of TikTok does uh, expose a number of videos that are undeniably outrageous, that do show bad behavior, including oftentimes bad behavior from those that are teaching children, right? So they acknowledge that there's a reason this account is popular. There's a, re there's a reason this account is impactful, okay? And not everyone who finds the things uh, it posted on that account off-putting is, is out of its mind. And they do acknowledge that some of the videos now, because let's be honest, the videos that are put out through Libs of TikTok are intended to elicit a response, um, is, are now shifting to some videos that may not be so outrageous, that may just be some homosexual people uh, going about their lives or describing, you know, how... Uh, incidentally, their sexuality came up in a classroom setting or at their job or whatnot. Okay, so fair enough. Fair enough that, that it might be casting too wide a net um, and that some of the people in the videos that it's portraying are not actually doing anything that perverted or or depraved or worthy of, of criticism. Okay, so I think that's completely valid. Um, as he goes on, a better piece would have traced this decline and then, then asked the question, can one build an audience while staying honest? Or must a good idea, spotlighting bad teachers, melt into schlock that undermines the cause. I doubt it. And what is the impact of that on our politics? Now, this would be a helpful exercise. If, sh if someone who had followed Savodnik's instructions here, trying to understand what this says about culture, is, you know, what is this account doing that is good, that is bad, that is neutral, and unpacking that from there. But she doesn't do anything of the sort because she has no interest, okay? She's a political operative masquerading as a journalist and not a very good one. Um, so it doesn't seem like this is slowing down the libs of TikTok account. I think it's, uh, I think it has gained about 200,000 followers since the hit piece ran. So um, Taylor Lorenz's tactics and her objectives in doing what she's doing, um, I don't think they're long for this world. I mean, she's made, I, I know some people who who know her. I know some people who've worked with her. She's making lots of enemies around town, and eventually the, the Washington Post is going to get tired of her bullshit, just like the New York Times got tired of her bullshit. Um, so, but this uh, this battleground as as part of the culture wars, you know, of let's let's be honest, this is what it is. Um, young lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender teachers who, you know, who do not think that they should have any limit on teaching about alternative sexuality or sexual orientation or gender ideology, no matter the age of the people that they teach, this is going to be a battleground in, in the culture war, American culture wars, um, and the parents' rights movement, which has sprung up and which is gaining steam quite a bit. Um, so, uh, a fascinating topic, I believe, and one for both, both for good and for bad, I believe it's a fascinating topic but want to continue to monitor. So everybody, thank you so much. Between the mask mandate, Elon and Twitter, libs of TikTok versus Taylor Lorenz. Woof, culture wars heating up this week as I'm sure it will continue to stay hot. And here at The Prevailing Narrative, we will be here to report on it all. So thank you so much. Talk to you soon. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. The Prevailing Narrative is a Cavalry Audio production in association with iHeartRadio. Produced by Brandon Morgan, executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Matt Belinsky. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.